The best rugby insight and analysis. OTB Sports Rugby. They don't look like the All Blacks. They're not playing like the All Blacks. They're barely clinging on. They never really looked like they would win Test 2 or 3. Subscribe to the rugby stream on the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM. With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. Delighted to say Daniel Harris is with us, but not primarily to talk about Manchester United because, Daniel, you were on the minute-by-minute for the Guardian yesterday in the Chelsea Spurs game and uh, we wanted to get your thoughts on Handshake Gate. This is great stuff. Uh, My favourite bit is where Antonio Conte looks down at his hand and Thomas Tuchel is still holding it and Antonio Conte has never in his life been as disrespected in that moment. That's um, stunning stuff, really. I think fair it felt to me like looking at it, if you look at the actual still, you can see to me, look to me that Conte was properly flexing. You can see that you can see the stress on his forearm. So it felt like it was a classic six of one, half a dozen of the other situation where Tuchel didn't realise that if you put two your two fingers, your second finger and your third finger down the forearm of the other person, it is not possible for them to squeeze your hand. This is a trick that uh, every every playground child surely knows. But it was just that whole little section, the culmination of the agitator that had been going all the way through the second half was just everything that no one wants to see. I can't even believe we're talking about it now. It's disgusting. <laughs> it's, um, I was, that was one of Donald Trump's tricks as well, wasn't it? It was always the, like, pull the hand over and everybody was kind of trying to avoid being the one who did it. So there was a kind of a period of time where there was a lot of that being analysed and um, maybe not enough on the policies that he was affecting. But uh, that's, <laughs> that's a different story. Um, what's Tuchel doing here? What, what, what's he trying to establish? Why is he doing this? Uh, I think... Um, what we don't always understand about elite sport is it's hard and because we kind of watch it and you think, well, I might have scored that or this is what I would do if I was managing. But what we can never understand is the pressure that these people are under or the kind of mentality it takes to cope with that pressure. So the, when it boils over like that, I mean, the only surprise to me is that it doesn't happen more often. I mean, if you think about, if, I mean, if I definitely think about the sport that I played in, and how agitated people got playing Sunday League football or Maccabi League Sunday football that I played in or university football and how agitated people got. And these people are actually good and their their livelihoods depend on it, their reputations depend on it. So, of course, after a kind of game where they've almost had a ruckus after a goal, then you've had Tuchel sprinting down the touchline in front of Conte, then you've had an injury time equaliser. I mean... The, one of the reasons the cameras are always on those handshakes is because they know that something might happen. And the only thing that's surprising is that, and also disappointing, is that it doesn't happen more often. How good a game was it? It was, it was a really good game. I mean, the, the quality wasn't that high, but it was, it, it was intense. And that is really, I think, the main thing that you want in kind of any kind of sport, really. Is, is, you, is you want it to be, you want it to be wild. You want it to be intense. And I think that, the, the quality of the game itself, Chelsea played really well in the first half, but they were they were helped by the fact that Spurs were pretty supine and pretty reactive in the way that they went about it. But then, I mean, the thing that really seemed to make the difference for Tottenham was that just they brought on Richarlison, who didn't actually do that much beyond run about properly. And just in the very act of running about properly, he kind of inspired his teammates to do similar. And that really made a difference because ultimately with Tottenham, they don't. They lack. They lack a bit of presence in midfield. When the way that Conte's playing at the moment, 
Uh, I know Pierre Milhoiberg scored, but he's a bit slow. His passing's a bit negative. And when you only have, when you're playing a 3 4 3, so you only got two men in midfield, if those things are so of one of them, you're going to find it difficult to compete against the better teams. And what Chelsea did was they had two men in midfield because they're also playing a kind of 3 4 3. But they had Mason Mount and Kai Havertz making extra numbers. And that made it really difficult for Tottenham to get the ball. But once Richarlison started putting himself about, and started hurrying the game up, it meant that there was more ball available for Tottenham's attackers, and Tottenham have attackers to cause any team aggravation. One of the things that we've spoken about a good bit about Spurs is their strength and depth, and that's the whole point of them buying players like Richarlison, is that when, you know, in previous seasons they wouldn't have been able to influence this game, it would have been a relatively routine victory, and we would have said Spurs still a little bit Spursy, but notwithstanding the fact that the issues that they still have to overcome with quality in, in central midfield, there is something different about this Conte team and there is something different about not just them being able to change the course of the game but sticking with it right to the 97th minute yeah definitely I mean Spurs under Pochettino also when got scored loads of eight goals um, so I think they do sort of certainly like Harry Kane has been involved and, and Son have been involved in a lot in a, in a lot of those occasions but I think that the thing that you say about uh, Hoberg is the reason why it's strange is that they signed Basuma because of because Hoiberg isn't that good. But so whilst you can say you understand what Conte's doing in that he's saying that you own a you, you earn a place in the team by performance, not by transfer fee, and that does make some sense. Yesterday they were absolutely crying out for Bissouma's dynamism, athleticism, his ability to carry the ball, his ability to use the ball. So I think that it's true that Conte has changed the nature of Spurs in some ways, although I think the biggest aspect in which he's changed the nature of Tottenham is by making Daniel Levy back him in the transfer market because I think what happened there was that Conte knew that he'd got Spurs into the top four, so he had quite a lot of power because if Spurs are going to allow a manager who got them into the top four to leave because they're not willing to back him financially and a manager of Conway's calibre, that sort, of, that sort of starts to make the job almost toxic in that why would any manager worth their salt go and manage at Tottenham if that's what's going to happen to them? And actually, it's the kind of thing that, which you mentioned United earlier, that Eric Ten Huff might think about doing because if he, similarly, if he leaves United because the board won't back him, it always felt like this job in, United, in the United sense was the kind of the tipping point. If they won't back this guy, then why would anyone go there? And I felt like that, that was sort of the same with Tottenham. So what Conte did was... He knew that he was in a strong position and that in the end, it probably was cheaper for Daniel Levy and Joe Lewis to pay some money for transfers than to face a potential decline. Because if you don't then back Conte, then you've got players like Harry Kane and Son saying, well, why am I, why am I staying? Why am I frittering the best years of my career here? And that to me is the thing that really changed Tottenham is they've gone from being a club that sort of kind of hopes to get into the top four into a club that has committed serious funds to being in the top four and that itself is a change of mentality of the owners which is a change of mentality that can filter down to the players that you now have a well-supported team and that means that there are expectations and that ups the pressure on the players and Spurs have players who are good enough to be able to respond to that I think. What about Chelsea? What What's the long-term prognosis for, for them and for the money that they've invested over the course of the summer and the, the squad depth that they have at the moment. Um, uh, I, I think they could be title contenders if City were not City. <laughs> yeah, if, if, yeah, I mean, in a, in a different world, for sure. If we were not... If, but I think the thing with Chelsea is that they have spent 
quite a lot of money this summer, and they've still managed not to get themselves a centre-forward. Now, that's something that might change in the next few weeks. I think for Chelsea to actually challenge, it's something that absolutely needs to change. They should have won yesterday without having a proper goal scorer. Um, but what they need is someone who, in those kind of games, will just get them that extra goal that they that, that they need. Because, I mean, we're always kind of waiting for Kai Havertz to explode because he really he's one of those footballers who really looks like a footballer. Like, he's lean, he's tall, the way he moves with the ball is beautiful, he looks like someone who was born to play football, but it's a couple, it's, it's a while now where we've been kind of waiting for him to become that definitive player that, that Chelsea need, and he's not there yet. They played Raheem Sterling through the middle yesterday, who I don't think his finishing is quite good enough for that, um, although... He did make their second goal really nicely. Um, he's not, he's one of those players who has scored a lot of goals, but who's finishing under pressure. You don't entirely trust. Also with quick players, quick, skillful players like Sterling, I think they're better coming from out to in rather than just standing there in the middle. You want them to be difficult to pick up. So I think that Chelsea could finish as in third place, I'd be surprised if they finished any higher than that. But it's hard to evaluate them now because if they're still trying to buy, like apparently they're trying to buy Anthony Gordon, they're trying to buy Frankie de Jong, they're trying to buy Pierre Emerick Aubameyang. So it's quite hard to assess them at this point. But I thought that I was really impressed with how Tuchel got them playing yesterday because before the game, I actually wondered if Spurs might be able to exploit them a little bit in the spaces behind the fullbacks. Um, because it felt like in Kulisevsky and Son, they had exactly the players able to do that. But the way Chelsea set up enabled them to maintain numerical advantage in midfield whilst also dominating in wide areas. And I thought the way that Thomas Tuchel did that was really clever. But I think that they're going to fall a bit short of winning the, of winning the league. But they have a team that is good enough to beat anyone on, the, on its day. So in the cup competition, they're very live threat indeed. I wasn't sure what was going to happen with Tuchel after the Abramovich era finished, but it looks like maybe, maybe we, we don't know what kind of long-term owner Todd Bowley's going to be, but he certainly is very interested in the day-to-day running of the club and getting involved in transfers and doing deals and having fancy dinners with um, the other chief executives and owners. So maybe that works out and, and they're best buddies. Maybe, I don't know. But certainly Tuchel has emerged as somebody who seems to have a lot of power in a good situation. They're talking about redoing the stadium. You know... Uh, He's a very young manager. He's got an incredible CV now that he's won the Champions League. It looks like he might be there for the long haul. Yeah, it does. I mean, you're never quite sure because we don't we haven't seen enough of what these owners are like yet or what their expectations are. But it may be that because Tad is obviously now director of football and you don't know to what extent he will enjoy his power in that role and how much that will conflict with Tuchel. If he's got any sense, they will give Tuchel the kind of control uh, that Klopp has at Liverpool because Tuchel has earned that. He turned up to a team that was doing really badly, won Champions League with them the first season and is looking to move them on now. And if Tuchel were to leave Chelsea and then apply for his own job, you'd get it. So they definitely need to help Tuchel fortify his position. But at this point, it's hard not to be suspicious of someone who's come knowing nothing about football 
and I and appointed himself and appointed. I'm not saying knowing nothing about football because we I don't know exactly what he knows about football. But he's not an expert director of football. He's certainly not an experienced director of football. So to come in and appoint himself director of football probably tells us something about the way he conceives of himself. And that means that you would always be suspicious of how he might conceive of a manager when that manager has different opinions, because obviously Burley is also an extremely rich person and extremely rich people often think that you can exchange the correct opinions for for money. And so I wouldn't be certain about what Burley's going to do because we haven't seen him yet. But yeah, if he's got any sense, he'll pipe down and let's all go on with it. Um, how do you fix Manchester United? <laughs> How long do you have? Um, About two minutes. Right. So the way that you fix Manchester United, obviously, is to change the owners. But it's not the only way of making United slightly better. The, the problem is that they've hung Eric Ten Hag out to dry. The, the players that he needs, he's not been given. We don't know what promises they made, but I'd be shocked if it would amount to Christian Eriksen, Lissandro Martinez and uh, Tyrell Malassia. I doubt very much that it was just that was it. So, I mean, if I, I mean, what, what should really happen here is Ten Hag should do a Conte and he should go and say, if you don't back me, I will leave. Because if United, if, if the Glazers don't back Ten Hag and he leaves, then no player's going to want to go to United, no manager worth the salt's going to go to United and the value of the investment is going to drop. And that would allow Ten Hag. I mean, they might say, well, okay, leave then. But I, I, I'm not sure that they would because the, the amount of money it would cost them in lost prestige and therefore the ability to keep the coffers ticking over because of the players that you're still able to attract and the ability to play in European football because of the managers. You're still getting all right managers. Good enough managers are able to bring European football. Good enough players are able to bring European football. But if Ten Hag goes, then the pressure on United to appoint a different manager with the season still in progress, having been beaten like this twice, would be would be difficult. And I think that it is time for Ten Hag to have a full and frank one with the Glazers. And that is the only way because United need players. It's not the only thing because obviously the players need to get better, but these players are experts in getting managers sacked and getting someone new in has clearly not had the effect that you wanted it to have. Now, you might be able to blame some of that on Ten Hag, but there's some of these players that were that were letting Van Gaal down, that let Mourinho down and let Ole down. So you can't just blame it all on Ten Hag and say, well, they're clearly not receptive to his ideas or his ideas aren't coming over properly. It's the... I mean, ultimately, I mean, I'm, I've talked probably for 90 seconds of those two minutes to say that the whole thing stinks. The whole club stinks. The whole club's a mess. Uh, and resolving it is not the job of one summer. And yet you could do a really good job of making it much better in one summer by spending actual money on actually good football players. But the board don't want to do that because the Glazers are not interested in sport. They're interested in a trust fund, presumably the way that online shopping has overtaken mall shopping is financially problematic for them because a lot of their money is tied up in malls. And so they just want United to be the thing that keeps paying for them. And that that's going to require some level of success from United. And it's for, and actually I think it's for Eric Ten Hag to play on that and inform them that if they do not give him what he needs, then he'll go and find himself a different job. Uh, is, is one of the immediate things they could do to change the goalkeeper? Like, it's not to be reactionary, but we have spoken, I'd say, at length over the last couple of seasons about the evolution of football and how he is an old school goalkeeper, good shot stopper, occasionally a great shot stopper in patches, um, but not not really what you would pick if you were 
uh, a Ten Hag or a Klopp or a Guardiola and you want to play that specific style of football that requires your goalkeeper to be good with the ball at his feet 35 yards from goal I totally understand why Ten Hag would have looked at this squad and thought I'll sort the goalkeeper next summer because he does probably didn't want Dean Henderson he probably didn't want De Gea either and De Gea um, and in a year you can get rid of De Gea, let De Gea go and then spend the money elsewhere such that you don't actually need your goalkeeper as much as previously because you're trying to control the game which means the ball's down the other end more there's less pressure on defence and all the rest of it the thing what you say about De Gea is that he doesn't he can't play with the ball at his feet the problem with De Gea is not just that it's that he it's the errors like the one he tossed in the other day was on, on Saturday was just absolutely ludicrous goalkeeping and sort of spoke of someone who's not properly focused and because it, it's the kind of mistake that you very rarely see goalkeepers make and it's not just the fact that he can't play with the ball at his feet it's that he's a liability in terms of making mistakes even if we go back to the last year of Ole, the first year of Ole, sorry, De Gea made a mistake when United were winding up against Chelsea, I think it was, that basically had they won that game, they'd probably have gotten to the Champions League. And the mistake that De Gea made stopped that from happening. And he's been, and that was not the first, that was not the beginning of the decline. He'd been rubbish for a year before that. And he, for what, various reasons, the club, as I said, is such a mess that this has been allowed to proceed. And I think that it's not, a matter necessarily just of not be, not being able to play with his feet it's also the fact that he doesn't dominate the box which means that playing in front of him I think for the defenders is difficult because they're not sure when he's going to come they're not sure if he's going to come and get the ball or they think he's just rooted to his line which means that they all have to drop and play much deeper than they'd like to so the play, the problems with De Gea extend way beyond whether he's any use with his feet or not and I don't, I don't know, I don't, I don't know what the answer is because when I look at it, I guess my inclination is still to spend whatever money is available on outfield players and just hope the goalkeeper situation improves. And that's not because I have blind faith in De Gea. I no, absolutely don't. It's a bit. It's just. It is, a bit, it is a bit chicken and egg though because you've got a five foot nine centre back, but if you had a six foot four goalkeeper who was commanding in his, in his area, coming to take the ball uh, in those set pieces, then you could probably get away with your five foot nine centre back, and he could play further up the field, and then suddenly your midfield is actually under less pressure, and it's less easy to pick your defence apart because the team is playing collectively. So I, I, I look, I, I see the point you're making. He probably analysed wow, this is a much worse squad than I thought it was, so I'm going <laughs> to fix the goalkeeper problem next year. Because that guy, uh, Colm is in my ear pointing out that he's been player of the year four times, Manchester United's player of the year four times, and he was last year. But that comes off the back of games where the team is getting battered, he makes eight saves, and uh, everyone's like, wow, what a great player you are, because you've saved us and we've got the three points. But they're not supposed to be making eight saves against inferior teams. You're supposed to control the game. Yeah, for sure. And part of the inability to control the game is, I agree, it's to do with how this De Gea being rooted to his line just means that the spaces between the defence and the midfield are, are too big and between him and the defenders are too big. And so, so I agree with that. So, but going out and finding a goalkeeper. So what do you do? Do you go and think, well, I'll, buy, I'll get a new goalkeeper for an amount of money for a little bit? Or are you trying to get a goalkeeper who you're going to have for the next five to ten years? And I think that's the problem here is that they don't want to commit the money on a goalkeeper right now because so many other areas of the team need resolving. So you can look at it from the way that you just looked at it. And I 100% can see why you would do that. But you can also look at it and think, well, if you go and get Frankie de Jong, let's say, or a midfield player that means you can control the game, then you also take pressure off the goalkeeper that way. So... The answer, obviously, is that you need both. you need both. <laughs> but in the same way that United needed Darwin Nunez and they needed Frankie de Jong, and they ended up not bidding for Darwin Nunez because they were saving the money for Frankie de Jong. And again, the answer was not one or the other, which was 
what was put to Tanakh, we understand. It's that it was it, you need both of those, and this is what it comes back to. Yeah. United's a mess. Like they've committed some money, but not enough money. And just to go back to this Andrew Martinez, because you mentioned him, I accept the fact that he's small. I don't accept the fact that he should be getting caught under the ball like he did the other day. And also, I think that we need to give him a little bit longer before we decide for sure that he's too small to play centre-back in the Premier League because there are many players who have not been good at the beginning who, once they've settled, have, have got a bit better. I kind of watching the game at the weekend, I one sort of wanted Tanaf to keep him on. That, the taking him off, I mean, I understand why he did it because you think, well, you don't things to get worse for him because you're going to rely on him. Part of me also thought, you, the... the, the you were told by the club to sign Pal Torres. I understand why anyone would reject him, would reject advice that came from United. But he decided to sign Martinez. So this is your decision. You got to stand by it yeah. now, not not yank him at half time. That said, I wouldn't be surprised if against Liverpool we see Martinez relocated to midfield. Okay, that'll be interesting to see if that ha- does happen. We've got a week to uh, build up to that. Daniel, good stuff. We we'll get you on again before that, no doubt. Thanks a million. So, uh, see you again, everyone. Have a good day. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.